Hello, this is James Riddle, Vice President of Research Services and Strategic Consulting at Advara. I'd like to welcome you to the 10th installment of Advara's In Conversations With podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about how IRBs and research ethics boards review virtual trial technologies. And I'm pleased to be joined by Willie from Safira Partners. We're going to be talking about this really important topic. So, Willie, would you mind introducing yourself to the podcast listeners? Sure, I can do that. Thanks for having me today. My name is Willie Mulausen. I'm a co-founder of Safira Clinical Research, and I'm really looking forward to discussing how IRBs deal with the screenshot reviews today. Today, Willie and I are going to take a dive into how decentralized clinical trial technology is reviewed through the ethics committee, and more importantly, how it's developed and how we can make the review process more efficient to move clinical trials along faster. And so with that in mind, I think that we should probably go ahead and jump in. Willie, are you ready to roll? I am ready. I'm looking forward to this. It's been a long time coming, so I'm actually really happy to have that discussion to, with you today. Thank you. Maybe we can ground everybody on the podcast with what we're really talking about for decentralized clinical trial technology. From the IRB perspective, Advara has seen a proliferation of virtual trial technologies throughout the last decade and a half. There are some FDA guidance documents that guide how we have traditionally reviewed such technologies. That guidance documents were written 10, 12 years ago, and the technology has advanced substantially just in the last few years. So Willie, I know you are really involved in this world of building virtual trial data capture technologies and working with sponsors on their projects. Maybe you could tell us just a little bit about what Safira does and how you interact with the sponsors to build these technologies. Sure. Thank you. So Safira is a small boutique CRO is what would I call it. So we have been working with sponsors and CROs and technology companies basically to develop systems and processes around mostly ECOA capture. So basically capturing data from patients when they're at home or not in the doctor's office. And we've been doing this for quite a while. I've been in the industry for 23 years, doing mostly this for 23 years on various projects and different sponsors and companies that I was involved with. And so we've worked with many different technologies. We use wearable device data. We use ECOA, so patient diary data, anything in that space. That's our focus. That's basically what we do in Sophia. For those who might not necessarily know, what does ECOA stand for? So COA is clinical outcomes assessments, and there's uh, various different forms of that. It was a term coined by the FDA many years ago. Most people will probably refer to that more into EPRO, so patient report outcomes data, but there's also observer, clinician, and performance outcomes data. So all four together are basically COA, and E means it's the electronic implementation of these systems to capture that data from patients. In the old days, and if the podcast listeners could see me using air quotes, in the old days, these things were captured on paper. It was diaries on paper or a journal that someone filled out. Consent forms were on paper with ink. And now a lot of these capture technologies are done on your phone or on an iPad or on your desktop. And the way that IRBs review the various collection devices, the collection language, the consent language has certainly evolved over the years. But I would say that from the standpoint of IRB review, as I look back into history, there has been a traditional, let's review the content, 
and then let's also review the final, how the content will be delivered in the case of like an electronic consent, for instance. The FDA many years ago issued some guidance for IRBs on how IRBs should approach reviewing these virtual collection activities. And the guidance was coined around e-consent. And it suggested that IRBs should review both the content and the final delivery. You know, what was this actually going to look like when a participant got it in their hands, in their iPad or on their iPhone or what have you? And so many IRBs, including, including Advara, for many years had the practice of asking sponsors to provide for e-consent the final screenshots or access to the final version of the electronic consenting form. And that ultimately spilled over into e-diaries and e-pro and e-coa and e-everything else, where the IRBs would ask the sponsors for what is the content you're going to provide to the participants? And then after you're done building your electronic patient diary, please give us a copy or let us see some screenshots of this, of the final product so that the IRB could confirm there wasn't going to be you know, pictures of people dancing through tulip fields and dropping their crutches after they'd taken the investigational medication in the background of the patient diary, for instance. And that's a very, very over the top example, but that was sort of the premise behind it. So in your work, Willie, over the years, that review methodology of content first, then coming back and having to provide the IRB with a copy of the documentation or a copy of the screenshots or what have you, how has that impacted the advancement of these electronic collection modalities? We have actually moved quite a bit. There's very little paper anymore in, in these settings. And we have, because the FDA basically put out a guideline in 2009 how to develop these questionnaires and how to validate the questionnaires. So we still see a lot of, let's say, exploratory questionnaires or diaries. We see more standardized questionnaires in many studies. And there's a long process involved before these end up in a final version on a screen. You need to get the license from the author, then you have to implement that, then the author has to review the screens, approve them, then you go through another review. And then if you add translations, there's a couple more review runs until you have the translator versions on these devices. So there's a lot of work involved and takes a long time to get these onto the screens first. And then in parallel, generally, once you have done all the testing and so on, we want to go live. But in parallel, you have to do IRB submissions. And these IRB submissions right now, in most cases, still require screenshots or screenshot reports, which means that we cannot really provide these screenshots at an early stage to run these two processes in parallel. And that always causes problems with the timelines because we can actually really only produce the screenshots at a time when we actually should have provided them weeks ago or sometimes months ago to not miss an IRB submission. So this is a big issue in the whole process as it is right now. We are moving more and more into BYOD, which means patients use their own hardware and their own device, which makes it easier in many cases for patients, but not every patient wants that, but it makes it easier for a lot of patients. But what that adds on complexity is that we now don't actually know exactly what these questionnaires will look like on the different devices, different sizes, different operating systems. So they all look slightly different. So then the question is, what do we actually submit to the IRB? Do we submit the tablet version? Do we do the mobile phone version, the Android versus the iOS version? So it's an open minefield right now, as far as I'm concerned. 
it opens up an opportunity though as well because we don't know what the end product will look like in the minute detail now we do know there's nobody dancing through tulip fields in the background right so that part that part <laughs> that's when, a pretty extreme example on my part but yeah, it, it, yeah. It, it illustrates the point of why IRBs yeah, traditionally it, have asked for the screenshots it, it so does but so we don't have that basically even with these different versions that we have but we could basically generate some of the screenshots digitally instead of taking them off the actual device but the question really is what does it add to the safety of the patient by having a standard questionnaire submitted to i don't know how many dozens of irbs within one study and then next week the same ones to the next irb or the same irb so there's a lot of work and a lot of delays actually are caused by the submission requests basically we have seen that so the bring your own device has certainly, BYOD, has certainly proliferated during during COVID and even beforehand, but the COVID stay-at-home orders, Advara has seen a lot more remote capture devices, remote capture modalities, collection in the home, collection through Google Glasses, things of that nature. And it really did enlighten our thinking about the way that we approach electronic consent and electronic patient reported outcomes and e-diaries and the things of that nature. And so I can't speak for every single IRB out there in the world or every single research ethics board in the world, but at least at Advara, we did change last year, this last uh, 2021, we did change our approach to how we review e-consent and we switched and maybe Willie, I'd like to get your thoughts on if you think this will improve the situation. So we switched from the traditional show us your content in a Microsoft Word document, we'll approve the text, and then send us a screenshot of how that text manifests itself in the electronic consent when it's loaded into the tool. Sometimes that would be a day or two later. Sometimes that might be a month later, depending on how long it took the vendor to load the approved text into the e-consent tool. And then we would issue a final approval based on the screenshot of the e-consent in the tool itself or we sometimes had vendors would allow us to go in and look at the tool. What we switched to is what we realized was we really weren't ever finding anything. We weren't finding stuff between the approval of the text and the approval of the final screenshots. And so we've switched, at least at Advara, to a methodology where the investigator or the sponsor, whoever it is that is submitting the research, is able to describe for the IRB the process by which the approved text of the IRB is going to make it into the final electronic presentation in the tool and provide some attestations to the IRB, things like, I promise that the text that the IRB approves will be the same text that is presented to the participant in the electronic tool. Then the IRB is looking not necessarily at the final end product, but the process by which the approved text of the IRB consent will be manifested in the electronic tool. How does it get there? You'll see that same methodology coming out from Advara for all of the other electronic content, ECOA, ePro, eDiary, all of those E things, again, if with air quotes, sometime early next year. But really, I mean, the IRB wants to look at the content. The IRB wants to know how, what information is being presented to the participants and how can the IRB be assured that the electronic tool isn't messing it up, right? That the text that the IRB approved is actually the text that's going to appear on the tool. How it appears on the tool 
is sometimes unknown, as you mentioned, because with Bring Your Own Device, it might look different on Safari browser than it does on Chrome browser, or much different again, what it looks like on an Android phone versus, a, versus my iPhone. And so I think the IRB, at least at VAR, has come to the conclusion that we're not adding a lot of value by asking for all of these screenshots. Hopefully, the rest of the IRBs on the planet will follow suit. We shall see. But Willie, maybe you could comment just from your perspective. Will having IRBs change to this review the content and then review the methodology by which the content makes it to the electronic tool and not ask for the final screenshots? Will that fix the issue of the delays and such that you were describing? I think it has a huge potential to do that. And it's just like you said, you didn't find anything. When you use a standard questionnaire, I'll just mention one or two, like an EQ5D or an SF36. Look, they haven't changed in years and they probably won't change for many years to come. So basically, you wouldn't find anything there either because it doesn't really matter who submits that and what technology you use. The wording will always be the same. That's just what the FDA and others did basically by defining these processes that there's a good standardization amongst many of these questionnaires. Will, you talked about translation. So I'm assuming that this is going to be a, a challenge internationally as well. For the listeners, and we have a lot of listeners of the podcast who are other research ethics board members from around the world. Maybe you could just give an, an anecdotal example or two of the kinds of delays that you've seen happen in clinical trials because of the way that the research ethics boards and IRBs insist on capturing this end of product screenshot capability in a clinical trial. So for example, if we take a translation of a questionnaire that doesn't exist in the language that you're looking for, I'm German, so let's take German as an example. So if you have a questionnaire and you have it available in English, U.S. English usually is the starting point, and you can then easily program that and submit it to the IRB when, when you're ready. That's the fastest we can do. And that'll take between 10 and 12 weeks sometimes, or sometimes even a little bit longer, but let's say around 10 to 12 weeks. If you then have to translate that into 20, 30 different languages, and we'll stick with German, that process can take a couple of weeks in addition to that. And if you sometimes have, there's a, there's a very specific process that we have to follow to do what we call linguistic validation. So it's not just a simple forward-backward translation, it's, it's a lengthy process. German is now an easier one to follow, but there's some other more complex languages where you have less basically availability of translators and patients that you can include in that process that can take 14 weeks, 16 weeks, a translation process. So if we then have to submit screenshots in the local language to the individual IRBs, so you add on the first few weeks for the build, then you add a couple of weeks, probably even months for the translation, then it has to be built into the system, has to be reviewed by the author, which will take a week or two or three. So you just add up all these weeks. We're talking about three, four, five months easily. And I've seen other studies where it takes up to nine months, basically, in delays because we have to get these screenshots in there. Now, the screenshots are not the only problem in this case. It's also the translations, but it just exacerbates everything and makes it more difficult and, and it takes longer. So it's definitely a big issue right now in, in our industry. Unfortunately, that only delays the startup of the trial and is ultimately going to delay on the back end how quickly these cures make it to market just because of this, this one particular issue. And there's lots of issues with study startup in clinical trials. There's lots of areas where there can be efficiency gained, but this seems like a pretty easy win to be able to get trials moving along faster. 
from a human subjects protection standpoint, I'm interested, Willie, in your perspective on what happens during the trial when there's a modification to the protocol and something in the diary has to change. Is there a potential subject safety issue by the IRBs insisting on seeing the final screenshots before a modification to the diaries or you know, pill reminder forms or what have you get pushed out to the participants? There could be potentially, yes. Look, we see a lot of protocol changes, but quite often they don't necessarily affect the ECOA piece or don't affect the, the patient questionnaire part. And if it does, it's usually that we change the time point when they have to answer a questionnaire or we add a questionnaire or take a questionnaire out. So the changes are not that big in most cases. From an IRB perspective, one of the reasons why we made the change in our approach to reviewing e-consent in particular, not only the efficiency of making sure that the trials get started up as efficiently as possible, but also during the trial for e-consent, we were finding that participants who were being reconsented or provided with additional information on a paper-based form were getting new risk information provided to them faster than the folks who were utilizing an e-consent, which presumably should have been more effective and quicker, but was delayed because the changes to the consent needed to be verified back through the IRB with a final screenshot once the vendor had loaded in the process. Advaro does provide an electronic consent product, and we have really worked hard to make sure that the delivery of modifications and the changes to the consent are done as rapidly as possible. But it does add an extra step when the IRB insists on seeing a screenshot of the final version before it goes in front of the participant's nose. One of the other reasons why we decided to change the e-consent as well uh, was we want to make sure that changes are pushed out rapidly so people get new risk information as quickly as we possibly can. This is the big advantage of these electronic formats, right? So we can push out a new version of a questionnaire or a new questionnaire basically on the with the push of a button, right? Versus having to ship paper forms into 20, 30, 50 different countries and sites and so on. So this is exactly the one of the advantages of using electronic means is that we can do that across borders very quickly and very efficiently. And and that's why. I'm always looking, we at Sophia, we're always looking at all kinds of processes around that, trying to improve where we can or help to improve where we can. So this, this initiative uh, has been coming for quite a few years. So I'm actually very happy that we're finally getting somewhere and this, this makes some changes because it will address one of the major drawbacks and one of the major delays that we have in any clinical trial in this space. So it's actually, it's very good that we see that moving. I'd like to just kind of think about what comes next. So let's envision a world where every IRB and research ethics board in the world doesn't ask Willie for screenshots anymore. Yeah, look, right now we spend a lot of time and effort and money basically on producing these screenshots. And that is at this point, from my point of view, a lot of wasted energy and wasted effort, because again, it doesn't, as you said earlier, it doesn't add to patient safety at all, not in a meaningful way. So if we can redirect all these efforts and enthusiasm for the screenshots into other areas that we can address the next hurdles, basically, I'm sure we'll, we'll find a lot of other things that we can improve as well. But at a minimum, we will basically cut the timelines from submission to basically approval. And because we can do the submission earlier, which means we can start studies earlier. Now, there's again, there's other things that need to be fixed as well or need to be addressed. 
But in this case, I think this will have a huge impact on starting startup timelines, especially in international clinical trials where we have 10, 20, 30, 40 different countries and languages involved in that. This, this is a huge undertaking. And if we can get to a place where we submit with the protocol the necessary information about data privacy, protection of the patient with regard to the technology, and probably even how we translated these questionnaires into the basically different languages. So some additional information around that so that IRB can rest assured that what they see is what's on the device in the end and basically in the patient's hands, then I think we're in good shape and can redirect a lot of efforts into other areas. And that's, that is encouraging. At Advara, we are definitely in the mode of making sure that these protocols are run effectively, safely to get the cures to the end market as quickly as possible. Also, we see the advancement of clinical trials really as a patient, patient first issue. These cures need to get through clinical trials so we can determine if they're safe and effective. By, if we can eliminate one thing or two things or five things, if we can eliminate a few things to make it go just a little bit faster, everybody benefits. And certainly the way that IRBs review decentralized clinical trial technology seems like an area that we, at least Advar is trying to move this forward and eliminate some of the burdens of the study startup that go into reviewing these technologies. I, I, I'm interested to know as well, like we see a proliferation of these remote capture tools. One of the benefits we see of decentralized clinical trials is the ability to both include more people who may not necessarily have been able to participate in the past because some people don't have time to go to the clinic to fill out their diary for their patient reported outcomes once a week, Monday through Friday from eight to five. They'd much rather do it on their iPhone at eight o'clock at night when it's convenient for them to fill in. How are they doing? What are they feeling? Things of that nature. And so as a community, when I talk to my other IRB colleagues, one of the concerns that we have sometimes that comes up with these decentralized trial technologies is, is the data being collected the same quality of data or better than what we used to collect on the paper? Right? You've been around since paper. I've been around since paper. Now we see people you know, recording their e-diaries and their patient report outcomes on their phone or on their iPad or whatever rather than filling out a paper-based form and sending that in. In general, the James Riddle opinion is we're probably generating better data through these electronic tools than we did with pencils being checking boxes on paper and then somebody transcribing that into a, into a case report form. Willie, from your perspective, as we see these technologies proliferating, do you have the same view and opinion about the improvement in the quality of the data based in these tools? Yeah, I do. And I could talk about that all day long. <laughs> because that's <laughs> maybe just... we should maybe we could keep it to just a few minutes. But I think yeah, it's okay. an, but I'll... I think it's a really important topic that if we can get more of these tools into clinical trials and improve the quality of the data, we really have put the patient first and advanced these trials along in a meaningful, yeah. in a very meaningful way. So on my first day on my first job in this industry in March, 1998, my first job was double data entry of uh, paper-based diaries from patients into a data management system at the, at the time in Berlin. So I saw pretty quickly after a couple of hours that there's something not right with that approach, right? But that was at the time when we didn't have smartphones, right? So there was, that was a time in 1998 when 
in vivo data, PhD, and others. The early companies were doing some e-diaries. But there was also the time when there was the first study to prove that basically patients, when they enter data in paper diaries, and then somebody transcribes it afterwards, not only do you introduce errors during the transcription process, but we have that what we call parking lot syndrome. So a lot of patients fill in the diary on paper just the next 10 minutes before they go into the doctor's office when they have their visit. And then there's that proof over many studies that basically when you have a recall bias, when you do it like this, um, you want to have patients entering the data as closely to the event that you're trying to monitor as possible, especially when we talk about patient daily diaries, for example. So there's a whole host of publications over the last 20 years, and my team and I, we've done a lot of work as well on the BYOD side of things to prove that you can get the same, if not better data, better compliance, better engagement from patients if you have a BYOD approach. So if you let them use their own device, and then as an extension to that in a DCD setting, actually let them do it whenever it suits them and not when it suits us and when we want them to be at the site. So there's more and more data coming out now because due to COVID, we were forced into accepting more DCT settings, basically, right? So now we're seeing more and more data coming out that's being published that actually proves the point that at a minimum, the data is no worse. Actually, in many cases, the data is better. We get higher engagement rates. We get uh, patients stay on the studies longer. They provide the data more accurately. Now, we're always talking small percentages in most cases, not like a huge difference, but small percentages. But I think what we'll see over time, where we see increased recruitment rates, because we now can reach patients that we couldn't reach before. Now, we should fill studies with patients faster than we currently do. So all this is ongoing research and ongoing monitoring to look at the numbers. And as you said earlier, there are so many new vendors out there and so many new technologies out there that we will, we will see more of that. And we will, we will get a confirmation whether we're right or wrong about this. And I'm with you. I think we'll see better data and the first indications would show that. But there's other stuff, for example, that I think is going to be interesting and, and in the setting as well. I'm a big fan of voice assistants since I've seen that my children use them on a regular basis. I'm still more the old cell. I like to type on the keyboard and on a screen versus talking to my iPad, for example. But I think that's huge potential there with the voice assistants. And that brings in another question for IRBs. How do you get this done, right? So how, yeah. do, you, how do you review the voice of an SF36 or you know, most likely you look at scripts for it? I guess, or you, you will look at scripts or you don't need to look at that at all. Similar, you just know it's SF36 and we're good to go. And there won't be any tulips in the background when you use voice, but maybe something else, some nice music or something, right? <laughs> I, can picture, I can picture it now. I haven't seen this in the IRB yet, but I'm sure it's coming where the participant gets to go like, hey, Alex, is it time to take my pill yet? And somehow that's built into- um, I built digital systems like that. We already built systems like that. So we, we've done some work and I'm doing some work right now to show because there's huge interest. And again, talking about making studies more accessible, we can reach patients that can't read or write, but they can still yeah. understand, listen and answer through a voice assistant. And we can reach patients that have, uh, let's say, a vision impairment to various levels. They can still talk and answer questions. So I think the voice is currently one of the under value modalities that is out there, but I'm absolutely sure that will change over the next few years, which brings different challenges, but it's, it's a huge opportunity. Well, that sounds like the next installment of one of our podcast series. We can talk about the integration of personal digital assistance into, into clinical trials. 
I'm just waiting for the first conversation where the IRB is trying to decide how to consent in artificial intelligence to be able to use the artificial intelligence in the research where the consent form is written to the AI rather than written to the participant. I suspect we'll probably get there in our lifetimes. So, hey, Willie, this has been a distinct pleasure getting to talk to you. Your organization is really moving this forward. Thank you for participating in the podcast. I hope we get to have another conversation like this down the line. Yeah, look, I would love to come back. There's always uh, good topics and I enjoyed the conversation. It was, it was very good. And I'm, I'm actually very happy that Alvaro is so forward thinking and is moving the needle in this case. So I'm, I'm very happy and I wish you best of luck with that. I'm sure we'll do well. And I'm happy to come back some other time. Everyone, thank you for listening. That's going to conclude our 10th installment of Advara in Conversations with. Make sure that if you enjoyed today's session, that you follow us on all of Advara's channels, LinkedIn, Twitter, and also come back to advara.com to download this podcast and the next podcast or wherever you get your podcast. Look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you and have an enjoyable rest of the day or evening or morning, depending on when you're listening to the podcast. Take care.